0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: Oh, Chris, absolutely. And you have to keep in mind that the Eurasian lynx is typically the third largest carnivore throughout most of the race.
0: What can they teach us? It seems like it was a little bit controversial, but you're right. Like the rewilding is, is a tough. It's tough. I mean, I go back to Allison's interview, episode 21. Right? Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: So we're going to cover another fun cat today. They're always fun to talk about.
1: Oh, Chris, so much fun. I got to dork out all week about cat hunting styles and techniques and tons of fun YouTube videos from the BBC and National Geographic and just so much awesome footage about the Eurasian lynx.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, you know, December, we're starting our quote unquote winter animals, which makes me laugh because here in the Southern hemisphere, it's now spring summer. So for my fellow Kiwis and over there in the Aussies and all the rest, uh, over in Africa and South America, we know we're coming into spring summer, but in December, we like to cover some winter animals from the Northern hemisphere. And, and this one's really special.
1: Oh, so special, Chris. It's the largest of all the lynx species, which we'll talk about the four different species of lynx today. And what blew my mind is it has one of the biggest distributions of all cat species. I mean, the range on this cat is phenomenal. Phenomenal.
0: Oh, it's massive. I mean, when you throw in all four species, it's pretty much the entire northern hemisphere. But just the Eurasian lynx itself has one of the largest ranges of any terrestrial animal that we've covered. I mean, our aquatic species obviously cover the oceans, but this one's massive and very complex conservation story with the Eurasian lynx. And we're going to touch upon it, but the Iberian lynx, one of the other species, is classified as one of the world's most endangered cats. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah, lots to cover.
1: You're right, Chris. And the conservation story behind the Eurasian lynx is also a really fascinating story where their populations were under a thousand, maybe 700 back in the 1930s and 50s. And they've now rebounded and aren't completely out of the woods yet, but are doing much better than they were due to vast international conservation efforts. And so it is a really good story about how when countries work together and start to ban hunting and some of the fur trade and really work together to try to save the species, it can be done. And so, yeah, just a a really, really beautiful, beautiful cat. Chris, I would be trying to type all the data down and research notes and I just kept staring at this beautiful cat. I mean, I have like four photos on my slides right now because it's so pretty and its coat does change depending on whether it's summer or winter in the northern hemisphere. So just a beautiful, inspirational cat we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah, It it is. And when you do talk about describing this animal, I'll just start with the sizes so people, as you talk about it, because it is such a beautiful cat. This is a, a bigger cat. It's a little bit bigger than the cloud leopards, which is one of the last cats we covered. You know, I'd almost call it like a small lab size. The Eurasian lynx is the largest of the four. So you're looking at a body length of up to 43 inches or 110 centimeters. So that's just over, what, one meter. At the shoulder, they're about 30 inches. Height at the shoulder 75 centimeters, but they can weigh up to 64 pounds. You know, so the Eurasian lynx are, are, are not tiny little cats. They're, they're pretty moderate size.
1: Well, Chris, I was reading the Siberian lynx, which is the largest subspecies of the Eurasian lynx, those males can weigh up to almost 40 kilograms. And there is a little bit of sexual dimorphism present between the males and the females, with the male being a little bit larger than the female typically. But their color and their coat is what is just so intriguing uh, for me. And no two cats are alike. So in general, the Eurasian lynx is going to vary in color from a gray to a reddish-brown, almost yellow fur, if you will. And for most of the subspecies, they're going to have black spots. And these spots can vary. Some have patterns with large spots. Some have small spots. Some have rosettes. And even more rare, you can have coat patterns that actually have a little bit of striped or solid patterns to them. But for all the different coat patterns and colors, the belly and the front of the neck and the inside of the limbs and around the ears are always going to be whitish in color. And during the summer, the Eurasian lynx is going to have a shorter coat, and it's going to be typically more reddish and brown in color. But during the winter months, especially depending on how far north they live, they're going to have this gorgeous, thick, silver gray, grayish brown coat when it's cold outside. And Chris, as I was looking through all the different photos of the Eurasian lynx, they, like I said, they were just, I fell in love. They're stunning, stunning to look at. But I must say, I think out of all the subspecies, I was a little bit more drawn to the Canadian lynx as far as the coat. It's a little bit more light in color, gray in color, has a little bit more of a winter feel to it. Uh, But they're all just Beautiful cats. And like I said, no pattern is, no coat pattern is totally the same. It's just beautiful. And then, Chris, you take the face. Mm -hmm. The face of any lynx is a face you will fall in love with. Even if you think you're more of a dog person than a cat person, I challenge you to Google a photo of a Eurasian lynx or any lynx and not fall in love. They have this round face and a lot of flared facial fluff if you will and uh like i said the underparts of the neck and the chin are going to be white all year wrong all year long and they have triangular ears and a wonderful characteristic of the eurasian lynx is these black tufts at the tips of the ears
0: it's adorable It is. i
1: challenge you not to fall in love like yeah. seriously and then their eyes their eyes are mesmerizing in fact the name lynx is Latin or Greek from lunx, which means light or brightness, which is a tribute to the luminescence or the brightness of the cat's reflective eyes. So pretty cool stuff. I mean, their eyes, yeah, mesmerizing. I I fell in love over and over and over this week. But compared to some of the other like big cats that we've talked about that you might be more familiar with, the body of the Eurasian lynx is going to be short and stout. They do have long front legs and really sharp retractable claws, which we'll talk about when we get into physiology. And their feet, Chris, their feet are large. Their paws are webbed. That was a pretty cool fact I learned. And very much covered with fur. And this fur covering their paws helps them navigate in the deep snow during the winter months. So, really important with these large snowshoe feet. And their tail sets them apart, of course, yes. from a lot of our other cat species. It is short, or bobbed, and solid black, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it really stands out compared to their coat, and especially in the winter months as well. So, just a beautiful, beautiful uh, medium-sized cat that I'm not, I'm not giving justice to, but watching them climb up and down trees and jump two meters for. Uh, prey item, just beautiful, beautiful, yeah. beautiful cat.
0: Yeah. I mean, anytime we 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 pick some of these species, you don't really think a lot about, you know they exist, you just don't know a lot about them. And as we learn about them specifically, it's just, is amazing. And again, why I love this podcast, because it's just, you know, each week bringing these new species out there. And when you talk about the bob tail, one of the four species is a bobcat, which we know in North America. And Oh Chris, can
1: you see my can you see my uh <laughs> my little, little domestic <laughs> my domestic uh lynx cat just kidding. Uh yeah. my domestic cat Bear is very jealous that I'm talking about another Kitty Cat's beauty. She <laughs> is all up in my business right now, so more I than normal, yeah, more
0: than way normal. more than normal, <laughs> more than normal. She is like in the uh, webcam, like hello. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I apologize if we can hear purring in the yeah. in 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 the uh, to our listeners, but yes, anyways, yes.
0: all right. So the other species. So we had the Eurasian lynx, which is the largest, then the Canadian lynx, which we're going to talk a little bit about when we talk about fur and the fur industry here in a minute. You know, they can get up to like thirty pounds. The Iberian lynx. Again, smaller than the Eurasian. They're, they max out around the males, around 28 pounds. And then you have the bobcat, which is, you know, the males can get up to about 30 pounds. So those are the other species and sizes. Now, when you talk about range, the massive range of the Eurasian lynx, they go all the way from Europe, all the way across Asia. So, when you're looking in the northern parts of Europe, so Norway, Sweden, Finland all the way through Russia and then their range creeps down into Mongolia have a pretty good range in China then parts in the Middle East or Western Asia so Iran, Turkey, Georgia those those areas and then down into Western Europe where they were almost pushed to extinction but have been making a comeback like I was reading in, in Switzerland uh, parts of France so uh, those are some of the the areas that the eurasian links are found now the iberian links because we're going to talk a little bit about them they were and we talk about evolution the eurasian links actually drove the iberian links down into spain and parts of portugal so in 1900 they were found pretty much all over spain and portugal well, with human development and everything in the last 100, 120 years, they've been really pushed on the brink of extinction to where now they're just in a couple reserves in Spain. But we'll talk about them in conservation where they were down to less than 100 cats to now there's over 1,100. The last census was taken this year, 1,111 Iberian lynx. So in the southern parts of spain they they have been working to preserve the, this cat but you know looking at lynx and where they fit in i mean this is a critical carnivore that fits a niche that we need you know one of the animals we're going to talk talk this month about is is rabbits or hares and just a couple of weeks ago angie when we did the wombat episode and I have a very interesting interview coming out with a, a rabbit rabbit expert this month, but we talked a little bit about Australia and how rabbits just have boomed because they have no natural predators there. And rabbits are actually the number one problem species in Australia. Having, I think it was over 300 native species were endangered because of rabbits so when, you wild. Take, yeah, so when you take these critical carnivores out, now the Eurasian lynx, when we get to nutrition, they hunt a variety of prey, but especially like in North America, the Canadian lynx and the bobcat, very critical keeping some of these lagomorphs and rodents and other, you know, what we consider pests uh, in control, right?
1: Oh, Chris, absolutely. And you have to keep in mind that the Eurasian lynx is typically the third largest carnivore throughout most of the range. So they can really influence population sizes of these prey species. And on a daily basis, they eat anywhere from one to two and a half kigs of meat per day. And in regions where the smaller prey items like rabbits aren't present, the Eurasian link is highly adaptable and can hunt larger prey like roe deer and red deer and chamois, which is C H A M O I S. So I might be pronouncing that wrong. It's a small French ungulate that looks like a goat, but I think it looks more like a uh, sable antelope. Actually, I, I think I talked about it on a few podcasts ago. So we need to cover chemise or mm-hmm. chama. If I'm, I'll have to get my French friends on here to help. <laughs> yes. If you're from France, or you're listening. Send us an email. Anyways, uh, but one study showed that Eurasian lynx can take down about 10 to 40% of these deer and chamois populations annually, which is important because excessive deer populations can influence zoonotic diseases in the area and. And having too many herbivores in an area can be bad for the plant species. And it's just important to have that prey-predator balance in these ecosystems in the Northern Hemisphere. And so the density of the Eurasian lynx, how many there are, can really have an effect on these ungulate populations. And so when there weren't any of them there back in the early 1900s, 1920, 1930, these Small rodent and small and medium-sized ungulate populations were going through the roof, which is not good for the
0: ecosystem. No, I mean, it just goes back to wolves. I mean, the classical study in Yellowstone, and uh, and we just had that interview with uh, Dr. John Vucetich, you know, talking sure, about the wolves from Michigan Isle,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, the Isle of Royale,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and talking about the important balance there. So. You know these carnivores are so important in keeping nature in balance, and so that you know I'm I'm really proud of Spain for the work they're doing, and and then Western. That's Europe. It's
1: incredible, absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: that they real they realize these animals are important. Now I went on a little bit of a a, a different rabbit hole. <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole uh, this week, and that was looking at the the fur industry and. We haven't talked about this since raccoon dogs is the last time we touched upon that because raccoon dogs are farmed for their fur, you know, so a lot of dog fur that you see on coats is actually raccoon dogs that have been raised and and slaughtered for their fur. And I did this because Lynx fur is being sold internationally. It is being sold across the world. Not so much Eurasian Lynx because there are some protections. They are hunted in certain countries, but most of the lynx fur, and it goes back to your description, Angie, is the Canadian lynx because that whitish fur is so beautiful and in demand. So there is more a,
1: beautiful on
0: the, the cat itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, this is a, is something difficult to research because the fur industry is not very transparent because there has been a lot of pushback in the last, I'd say 10 years, at least Uh, anti-fur campaigns have been very effective in driving down a demand for animal fur. And so people are realizing, you know, that these animals are, are, you know, a lot of animal welfare concerns with like mink farms and things like that. And then also uh, with, with how like Canadian Lynx, are trapped and killed for their fur so the only numbers i could find is in the early 2000s over a six year period is 15387 canadian lynx were killed for their fur and we know bobcats are also trapped and killed for their fur we those the demand is usually in asia and some european markets but i did find data that in 2011 16,258 wild bobcats were killed and their skins were exported Ooh,
1: by 2000,
0: 2015 that number soared to 65,603 so even bobcats are being trapped and killed for their fur now if you go online and look i links coats you know, what I could see here from New Zealand, it may be different for where you are in the world, is they're selling anywhere from eight to twelve thousand uh, US dollars uh, for a full length coat. Now, looking at the fur industry as, as a whole, CITES, that kind of helps regulate some of this, is, says that you cannot deal in furs from all primates, all big cats, and all bears. You also can't deal in elephant or rhinoceros skin or horns, but some cat furs like the bobcat and lynx can be traded within a country. I tried to look up different governing rules um, in the United States. There are no federal laws against it, but certain states, I think California as being one example is banning uh, the you know animal furs to be sold. Uh, I, I, you know, they're, they're, it's just tough to get a, a handle on the international laws. I, I think there still is a lot to uh, be determined across the world, you know, through different countries. Now, many different animals are raised in captivity for the fur trade. Like I said, raccoon dogs, minks, foxes, chinchillas, which I know we covered many podcasts ago. So they're they're traded beavers are still traded weasels seals sables uh, all these animals are are still being hunted uh, trapped and killed for their fur now if you do go online and look and there is a an elegant uh, designer wear that's promoting lynx fur and i i just took some quotes from it you know, how they're promoting it. And I just want to read it a little bit to the audience so they know that that lynx are still being killed for their fur. And they say on the website, if you love natural but not traditional fur, you will appreciate exotic lynx fur, which is valued even more than sable. Lynx is harvested mainly in Canada and wildlife as these animals are not bred in captivity for the fur trade. The license to hunt is expensive, hence the value of lynx fur. Moreover, fur produced in winter is more valuable as summer fur is rougher and shorter. And then this this had me cringing. The most valuable... Oh, I was already cringing. I but know, I know, but this really had me cringe. I'll put my seatbelt on. <laughs> the most valuable fur of the Lynx comes from its stomach. The pile on the back is shorter. Therefore, elite fur coats are sewn from abdominal fur. In more economical models, such fur will adorn the most prominent places of the collar Chesterhood. So it goes on. Uh, I read this and I just was like, how many links are killed just for their stomach fur? That's it. You don't use, you don't eat the animal. You you don't use any other body, body parts and you go and just cut off the belly portion and then, you know, dispose of probably, they probably use the, the other fur and other parts, but just for its skin. That's it. That's it. It's, you know, this isn't a deer hunter out there eating meat or anything like that, you know, Anyways, the good news is scores of clothing designers and retailers around the world have banned fur from their products. So, Gucci, Armani, yes, awesome. Hugo Boss, uh, Coach, Versace, uh, they all have banned the use of fur in their clothing lines. And some good news is the fur trade is dwindling. Mm-hmm. You know, the nations that buy. By the bulk of fur produced in america or asian countries china south korea russia and japan um you know and and the costs of these furs have have gone way down because there's just not a huge market for it so the industry is in decline that's good now really quickly fake fur or fall fur now this should not be confused with cat or dog fur because I've, I've seen that where, well, it's not wild animal, it's dog fur or cat fur. Much of that is farmed in China and it's not regulated. So these animals are, are really thought to suffer. True fake fur is fabric. It's, it's a synthetic and it's textiled. Now, there was a, a report 10 years ago that undercover investigations saw things labeled as fake fur was actually animal fur. So that that may still be a problem out there. I know some labeling. I actually went down this rabbit hole again. I looked at labeling laws in the U S there is some regulation there, but how to tell fake fur from real fur. Well, in fake fur, the tips are blunt. Whereas in real fur, they're tapered.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. Fake fur has material woven in the backing. Where animal fur is leathery because that's the animal skin. That makes
1: sense. Sure. Okay.
0: Now, one thing they said, don't try this in a shop. But if you already own some fur, you could trim a few hairs. Do this safely, please. But you could burn them. Real animal fur will singe and and may stink a little bit. You know, that sulfur smell. Uh, Fake fur, true fake fur will melt like hard plastic balls because it's synthetic. That makes sense, and it okay. will smell like plastic. Okay, so if you have any fur out there, if you you thought it was fake fur, you can look at that and and see if it's real or fake. You know, or in a shop, you can just look, you know, and go, oh yeah, this is true fake fur. You know, but it just seems like wearing fur is just so out of fashion, and
1: and don't light anything on
0: fire in a shop. <laughs> no, please don't. God, you did not hear that here. <laughs> <laughs> but i thought it was it was worth looking at because these these links are trapped especially the canadian links are trapped and killed for their pelts and um you know it's just, just, just not fashion. cool to wear real fur period no that's no,
1: it's just not. It's not. It's not if you like the look there's tons of faux or fake options uh but honestly there's just no need right
0: no so anyways i'm jumping off that soapbox that's where we are in the fur industry. And again, with another species, maybe we cover a mink or something. We can talk about that. Especially with COVID, minks made it in the news. And yeah, it's just uh, just something to, to, to keep monitoring.
1: Well, Chris, I went down a little bit different
0: uh, rabbit hole this week. Uh,
1: more based on this large distribution that the Eurasian lynx has. But also how it has been persecuted throughout time for its fur. Um, and in many areas, it was hunted to extinction um, all throughout Eurasia. And there were these wonderful, wonderful conservation efforts, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, in the early to mid ni- 1900s, uh, to start realizing, oh, wow, we're, we're in trouble here. Uh, there's not a lot of this cat left. Let's start trying to save it. But each different country in Europe and some of the different regions in different countries throughout Asia, whether it's uh, Central Asia or East Asia, and just learning all about the different ways that they handled this. And so a lot of countries where the Eurasian links had lost ground like Germany, for instance, mm-hmm. realized that they wanted it back. And so in Germany, there were um, reintroduction or rewilding is kind of a new term that a lot of scientists are using, talking about uh, starting to reintroduce animals that had been in a certain area or region that are functionally extinct there uh, and then putting them back there, right? Because that's that's part of their range that's where they should live. Uh, but there's always tons of issues with that, especially when you talk about a carnivore. And not that Chris and I aren't for it, but carnivores are tricky species to reintroduce because they are such skilled hunters. And a lot of times if they have been bred under human care, they haven't been doing a lot of hunting. Uh, or even if they are brought in injured, uh, it can be hard to re release them sometimes if they haven't kept up with some of their hunting skills, and uh, depending on how bad their injury was. So it's a really interesting topic in conservation science and reintroduction science. And I think that the Eurasian lynx is a really awesome model for how this works. If it can work, where hasn't it worked, where has it worked? And so looking at the data, since 1971, there have been 15 reintroduction sites in eight European countries, which have involved close to 200 Eurasian links. But only five of these locations are thought to have been successful. So because of this, we do have data, right? And Chris and I are scientists by trade and by training. And data to me is really important in order for us to help learn how to do things better, regardless of what the topic is. And so especially when it comes to reintroducing uh, these cats, if we can know what went wrong and study it, we can have a better chance to do what's right for these cats. Mm -hmm. And so one of the hot topics in the Eurasian Lynx conservation efforts is trying to decide if they should be reintroduced back into Scotland. Now, historically, and Chris will go into the evolution uh, here in a little bit about how these cats evolved, where they evolved, but historically, they did have a range, uh, including in the UK. And the Eurasian Lynx was thought to be wiped out of the UK a long, long time ago. Um, well, well before the 19th century. But it is thought to be some of their historical range. So conservation scientists and researchers are trying to devise plans and of course taking into account public opinions and uh, regional sensitivities and things like that on whether or not it would be a good idea to reintroduce the Eurasian lynx to Scotland. But Chris, what I love about this, we can take the data and what we've learned from the other reintroductions into European locations, and basically learn about it. So there's a paper in the uh, in the Journal of Biological Conservation in 2019, Improving Reintroduction Success in Large corna- Carnivores Through Individual Based Modeling: How to Reintroduce the Eurasian Lynx to Scotland. And they use modeling and a fair amount of it, so it's definitely above my pay grade when it comes to the type of modeling. And then all of the all the different variables they put into the model, they included metrics about the demographics, and then they looked at factors uh, like immigration, transfer, and settlement success rates. And they studied all of these variables in three different geological locations within Scotland. And the model was able to produce some really interesting numbers and chance of best success rates into a certain region compared to the others. And so if the Eurasian lynx is introduced into Scotland, there's a chance that we can get it right and do it well and do it better than they did before. And so it's work like this that really gives me hope in the future of moving forward with some of these rewilding techniques as far as just getting better at it, especially with large carnivores. There's a facility here in uh, Northeastern Florida that um, doesn't typically house Florida panthers, but they will get them sometimes as like orphaned kittens or um, injured in the wild or juveniles. And they will do really fascinating hunting training with them. Uh, to help gear them up to to be released back into the wild, um, but also give them the skills that large carnivores need before they go back into the wild. So we do know that this can be done with carnivores. It's just not always as easy as the ungulate or herbivore world that Chris and I come from, uh, where they just eat grass and trees and stuff. And not that it's easy to rewild ungulates. There's tons of... uh, international and political and other loopholes to jump through and to, uh, and to to help get it right. But we usually don't have to worry about them finding food unless it's like a drought-stricken region or something like that. Uh, whereas with carnivores, reintroduction can be a little tricky. So some of this modeling can potentially give them a better shot. So we'll have to keep our eyes and ears open to see what happens in Scotland. And if you are from Scotland or the UK in general, uh, I would love to hear about your opinions on if you think that's a good idea or not.
0: Yeah. It seems like it was a little bit controversial, but you're right. Like the rewilding is, is a tough, it's tough. I mean, I go back to Allison's interview, episode 21, rhino relocation in Africa.
1: Yeah, and,
0: and when she talked about, it took months in the Bomas to get these rhinos ready to be released in the wild.
1: Yeah, so, especially if they're uh, browsers, right? So mm-hmm. they browse on certain different trees and mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit more tricky than with a grazer, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. so there's a lot that goes in. Then you throw in a carnivore that needs to hunt and didn't learn that from mama. Where did they learn that?
1: Right, and the Eurasian uh, links to some really cool hunting stuff, which we'll talk about later on the podcast. And yes, if you're if you're not taught by mama, it's it's gonna you're gonna have a tough time learning some yeah. of these tactics.
0: Well, we'll get through evolution quickly. We've done cats, uh, are, you know, they're carnivores. About 279 species, plenty to go. Then we go into Phyliformia, the suborder cat-like carnivores. That's 56 genera or 114 species. Now, the philidae family, of these are the cats. So then you have 41 species. The subfamily is philinae. And what's interesting, there's 37 species in the subfamily. But these are the small cats having the bony hyoid. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> because they can purr. So do you know, if, we've covered one of these, if you can remember.
1: Well, I know we haven't covered the fishing cat, and that is next on my list, hopefully, Mm -hmm. uh, as we move into 2022. Uh, But we have covered the...
0: A big cat that purrs. It was a surprise at the end. Remember we had this discussion? You called your buddy. Tiger? It's on the tip of your tongue. I can hear it. Um, hold on. Oh, no, I know this. one. If up. I give you the most obvious, you'll get it in two seconds. On, that. I, I have
1: mom bring, yeah. it's been a busy month.
0: Yes, yeah. you, so you, you, de- you had a debate about this about animal with animals. Did they purr or not?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, snow leopards,
0: no, we haven't covered them yet. Oh, <laughs> I <was really> <laughs> <They> do- <laughs> we covered leopards like a uh, long time ago. Okay, 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 um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, can, uh, I can give you the easiest hint in the world
1: i know but i don't want it Well, it's not cheetah we didn't cover no uh
0: you just said it
1: oh it's cheetah yes oh my gosh i guess i feel like we covered cheetah a long long time ago
0: but oh, we we did cover cheetah yeah the they're in the genus acinox so they are part of the feeling they're in between okay yes yes, yes. Subfamily. So they purr remember you had that whole thing about them purring or not <laughs> chris it's
1: <laughs> been a while here
0: we've covered a lot of species too and yeah. you've had you still have a baby so i give you a pass yeah i mean the fat, there's so many species in here i mean this is where our domestic cats come from they're in the felis genus black-footed cat sand cat uh, Jaguarundi, uh, the Paulus cat, Ooh, the yeah. Marbled cat. The cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the uh, Yeah, John Jeff- worked with palace Jeffries. cats before. Yeah. Yeah. Servals, ocelots, leopard cats, and then cougars Good. we still have to cover.
1: Caracals, I want.
0: Caracals. There's a Man, lot. Yeah, we
1: could almost have a year of the cats. I
0: course. know. I know. So, yeah, that's that's a, that's a fun Ooh, and that family. makes
1: a, a side note. I want to do the singing dog.
0: Okay. Okay, we'll put that. that, That's the other side of the uh, carnivoria.
1: Unless our listeners email us or join us on our Facebook,
0: Patreon, or Patreon. Uh,
1: Yeah, Yeah, Patreon. (laughs) Oh, you you join Patreon, you get whatever you want, my
0: friends. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right. So the genus of lynx is lynx. The four species. The Eurasian lynx is pretty easy. Lynx lynx, and the Canadian lynx is lynx canadensis. Then you have lynx pardinus which is the Ar- Ar- Iberian lynx, and then the bobcat is lynx Rufus Now, Angie did mention there are six subspecies of the Eurasian lynx, which is one is the Siberian, and you have the northern, the Tukistan, Caucasian, Balkan, and Car- Carpathian lynx. Now, cats, you know, the myocids, carnivores, 60 million years ago, and then The break between canids and felids, you know, feliforms, caniforms was about 42 million years ago. Feliforms, we still have some missing pieces of the fossil tree because they they didn't fossilize so well because they were always in the forest. So they didn't tend to fossilize like our canids. So there's still some missing pieces in there. But cats first appeared about 30 million years ago then today's felids common ancestors appeared in asia about 11 million years ago the oldest lynx remains we have is about four million years old found in africa and then the closest ancestor that can be joined to today's lynx uh, was found in the northern hemisphere and lived about two million years ago and then from that species the, the four Species we have today evolved, so we don't know when Eurasian lynx Probably in the last, you know, a few hundred thousand years is when it, it kind of emerged. Now, as the Eurasian links, like like I said earlier, li- as the Eurasian lynx started to dominate Europe, it pushed that Iberian lynx down into the Iberian Peninsula. So, you know, cats are just fascinating. They're just so well adapted.
1: Well, Chris, that seemed to be the reoccurring theme when I was reading about the Eurasian lynx or other lynx this week is just how they are able to survive. And it's just, I mean, even when they're almost hunted to extinction in all these different areas, uh, they're able to rebound when we lay off the pressure on them and still remain so secretive. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Elusive. I mean, they really are. They Mm -hmm. really are. Now, some of the things, some of the facts that that we can cover in this Lynx episode is, you know, they live up to 15 years in the wild, which is, you know, that's about right for for a carnivore. Under human care, one lived to be almost 27.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, Lynx are good swimmers and they're fast. This is one thing I was surprised about. They can run up to 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour. And then the one thing you, you talked about jumping, but I read they can jump like probably in a straight line, like almost 25 feet, probably when they're really booking.
1: Wow. Yeah, the video I watch is from a standstill, like just straight up like Air Jordan. Wow. uh, Yeah, two meters from a standstill. So pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things I I was curious about are these tufts. Why do they have these tufts on the tips of their ears?
1: Because they're darling, (laughs) and that's why we should save them.
0: I know. End of story. (laughs) Well, I was reading. Some sci- scientists think that those tufts act like whiskers. Okay, mm-hmm. so it can help detect objects above their head. So it's kind of a, you know, to them to sense their surroundings. Sure, and they out they are out at night mostly. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that makes now, sense. Some others think it actually helps them hear a little bit. Helps trap sound waves. Okay. Now that got me thinking. We haven't really talked about whiskers all that much. I mean, we might have in some species, but what is the, why do we have whiskers? Why are they important? I know we talked about vibrissae on a lot of species. So I kind of went down this little rabbit hole to, to, to kind of look at whiskers and and some of the physiology behind them. So in cats, whiskers are two to three times thicker than regular hair. And the roots actually go almost three times deeper. Now, they are found, you know, on the side of the muzzle, but they also have them on their jaws and above their eyes. You know, the, those cats with their eye whiskers are so cute. On the backs of their forelegs, and the ones in their muzzle are called mystical whiskers. And typical cats have like 24 on each, uh, 24 total, 12 on each side. You know, so you have four rows of three each. And they're very, very important in detecting their environment. So as they move around to protect their face, protect their eyes, protect their mouths as they're sensing around their environment. One thing I did not know, these mystical whiskers actually have muscles that allow them to move the whiskers independently of each other. So sometimes when you see cats yawn and stuff, the whiskers go out in different directions. It just was fascinating. So Whiskers on the lynx or on any other cat are very, very important to sense their environment.
1: And Christopher, I didn't really realize about whiskers or Vibrasa until I started studying them actually more on horses. is just how important they are for sensing things, which I know you already talked about. But the actual physiology of the whisker is just how much nerve sensitivity or nerve cells, neurons, are embedded around the root of this thing thick, coarse hair. And I couldn't find the data for the links. But for instance, a seal, one whisker has been estimated to have over 300,000 nerve cells around it.
0: Well, it makes me think, go back to walrus, right? When we did walrus Mm -hmm. a long time ago. And I remember we talked about their vibrasa being important because they're in the depths and it's hard to see. So they use that to sense around. But yeah, the sensory organs are called proprioceptors. So all of those nerve cells tell the cat's brain, like, hey, it's right there, you know, or a walrus or a seal or something like that. It's, they're amazing. Right.
1: Well, and, and, and then in the horse world, and this is probably a different pod for a different day, a lot, of, a lot of people will often trim the whiskers on horses to make them have more of a clean appearance, like if they're going out in public. And a lot of equine welfare uh, and behaviorists are saying, hey, you know, that's unnecessary. We don't, we probably shouldn't be doing this unless it's really needed because it's not going to hurt the horse physically, right? Because it is hair. We all had our hair shaved and it doesn't hurt when it's happening, but how is it hindering them when they are foraging or just doing normal horse behavior, So really, really interesting discussions that I'm having in some of my horse behavior classes. Uh, And uh, it just, whiskers are a lot more important than we think.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, as they, that's a blind spot for them. So reaching down in the grass, you know, Mm -hmm. they feel around with that and they know where to go. So now Angie did talk a little bit about what Eurasian lynx eat, you you know, like the young moose. You know, some of the deer species you talked about, they do go after rabbits and hares. Uh, they'll eat some mustelids, rodents, kind of opp- opportunistic almost the Eurasian lynx where, you know, the Canadian lynx, Iberian lynx, and even the bobcat, they, they go for more lagomorphs or smaller prey because they're not quite as big. But the Eurasian lynx is, you know, again, 60 something, or you said up to, you know, 40 kilograms on the Siberian ones. So they can take down some decent-sized prey, you know.
1: Yeah, Chris, definitely compared to the other species of lynx, the Eurasian lynx is definitely more likely to take down uh, ungulates, uh, especially when rabbits and rodents and birds aren't as uh, aren't around as much. So really fascinating stuff. And as a hunter, the Eurasian lynx is pretty powerful, right? Uh, they're not going to necessarily race down their prey like a cheetah. Uh, they're definitely much more of a hunt by stalking and ambushing. They'll be up in trees since they're great climbers and sometimes they'll jump down and ambush prey that way um, or jump up uh, as I saw in several video videos. And as you mentioned, Chris, they can sometimes kill prey up to three or four times their size and the other thing to consider with Eurasian lynx is they are solitary hunters, right? So they do all of their hunting by themselves as compared to like if we think of wolves, right? Wolves are uh, pack predators and are going to do a lot of different strategies and work together in order to take down their prey. And that's such a fun po- podcast. We need to cover more wolf hunting behavior. I just love that. Uh, but the Eurasian lynx is out on his own. And they need to have these sneaky stalking ambush skills in order to attack their prey. And one of the really fun hunting behaviors that I learned about this week is that if the Eurasian lynx cannot consume the whole deer that it ate, because it's like a lot of meat, right? They'll actually cache their dead prey item to be eaten at a later date. So a lot of times links will bury what's the leftovers like, and come the next day or whenever to finish it up, uh, which is just fascinating. Uh, ha- we haven't really talked about that behavior in a cat uh, as much because a lot of times, like if you think of a big cat like a lion, if they take down a really big ungulate, they share it, right? So just really, really fascinating. And when times are tough, the Eurasian lynx is not shy. They will eat carrion if need be. So not as much of a generalist as like a bobcat, but the Eurasian lynx is definitely flexible with what they eat depending on the cycle of prey available. But depending on where the Eurasian lynx lives, they have some other top predators in their areas. It might be wolves, as I mentioned, or brown bears, even wolverines. And the research shows that where wolves and uh, Eurasian lynx uh, coexist, there's not too much competition. Typically, uh, since wolves are pack hunters, uh, and they're definitely taking down larger ungulates, the Eurasian uh, lynx might switch to a little bit smaller prey, and they usually avoid each other for the most part. There was one study that uh, did have did find lynx remains in a wolf, but it's it's pretty rare in general. Uh, it would have to be they'd have. To- Things would have to be really bad in the in the food web chain for uh, wolves to try to prey on Eurasian lynx, and Eurasian lynx are pretty tough because there was even a study about one defending itself, and then that wolf was never heard of again. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, And then, and as far as uh, bears go, bears are are omnivores, and so they, yeah, they don't, they just don't have too much interactions and. I um, it's still up in the air what happens when a wolverine and a lynx meet each other. That that cage match, we'll leave that for our listeners to yeah. uh, let us know what they think. You can put that on social media. Yeah, you can put that one on social media. But just but really skilled hunters and just beautiful animals to watch in motion. That's for sure.
0: They are, they really are, you know. And reading that about Wolverines going after lynx, I'm like, ooh, okay. You know, good luck on the the bigger ones. But what are some of those other behaviors that uh, you know,
1: yeah, Chris? Well, the Eurasian lynx is typically nocturnal or crepuscular. But once again, they're so adaptable. If the food is scarce, they can be found hunting during the day. But typically they love to hunt early morning, evening, and into the night. Uh, and when they're not hunting, they're your typical cat. They are sleeping, <laughs> and so they spend a lot of their day resting, either in trees or in thick brush, tall grasses, just out of sight. In fact, I was reading that in some of these areas in Eurasia, where uh, the the lynx was. Either wiped out or hadn't been seen in hundreds of years, they will actually usually find footprints and traces of prey items before they see or hear anything from a lynx because they're just so secretive and well camouflaged and able just to hide. And so, which makes them hard to study in the wild as well. uh, But they they like to keep to themselves and and they are solitary, right? So you're not going to see them in large groups or anything like that. And really, the only relationships that they form are going to be between a mother and their cubs. And part of the secretive nature of the Eurasian lynx is that they're not a super vocal cat. Uh, they're not heard very often unless it's like the breeding season. But they do have. Uh, several vocalizations such as a hiss, a growl, a mew, a purr. Think of your cat. Uh, They also will make a chatter noise and some moaning and uh, more loud vocalizations uh, during the breeding season. But like I said, in general, you're typically not going to hear them or see them if they are in your area at all. But the Eurasian lynx definitely does communicate to other conspecifics or other Eurasian lynx that they are around. And typically, and similar to your domestic kitty cat at home, uh, the male lynx loves to mark their territory by spraying trees with urine, which hopefully your kitty cat at home doesn't do that, but I know I've definitely known some males yeah. <laughs> yes. kitty cats yes, in my I lifetime have. that have done yes. that. Uh, and and uh, But the lynx will also bury their feces. Um, At the edge of their territory to also tell uh, con specifics to stay away. So uh, they're not, they're not too far from our domestic kitties, but uh, clearly you don't want a lynx in your house. That's for sure.
0: Now, uh, similar to other solitary cats, can you just kind of summarize their reproduction strategy?
1: Yes, Chris. After I take a selfie of me and Bear and you <laughs> on this podcast, because it's so funny. She's been here the whole time. She she's knows, like yeah. purring and super jealous. So I do apologize if you hear her purring in the background. And now she is scent marking, rubbing her cheeks on my microphone. It's funny. A little sidebar is uh, John taught the boys that when uh, – the kitty cats rub on them with their chins and their cheeks, that it's saying that um, I own you, you're mine. And so whenever, whenever Pear rubs on Xander, he'll say, or Zach, they'll be like, look, look, she's saying that I'm hers and she owns me. It's so funny. Super cute. So the mating season of the Eurasian Lynx will take place from February to April each year, depending on exactly which subspecies and location where the cat's at. But what's super interesting is the female is going to only be fertile for anywhere from like three to five, a maximum of seven days. So, really, really short time that she's an estrus. And so, it's up to the male to find her and breed her. And the search can be pretty competitive between males. And, and during this time, the males are definitely going to be more vocal. Uh, they can often be heard making high-pitched shrieks and wails uh, to other males, and then, of course, fighting over females as well in territory. And the female Eurasian lynx will often respond to the male's mating calls with making her own meow-like noises, uh, letting him know that she is and that she'll be receptive to his advances but once male and female links find each other, they'll usually hang out for a few days um, with copulation occurring several times. But once a female is out of estrus, uh, she leaves. And then if the male's lucky, he'll go find another female. Uh, and the female will go on her, her merry way. And the male has no other uh, parenting duties involved. And so the Eurasian lynx has a short gestation period. It's about 67 to 74 days, once again, depending on the subspecies and where they live. And once the female gets close to her due date, she will find a nice space to make a den uh, in a hollow log or a crevice of rocks. Uh, She doesn't necessarily build a nest, but she likes a concealed lair. Um, something very well hidden, right? Um, maybe underneath lots of vegetation or in a ledge somewhere, a rocky ledge. Um, and that's where she'll give birth to anywhere from two to three kittens. Uh, some, uh, some of the research says kittens, some of it say cubs. So I'll, I'll stick with kittens cause it makes a little bit more sense to me. Uh, the litter size can get up to five, but usually a female will have anywhere from two to three kittens. And they're and the newborn kittens are small, um, anywhere from 300 to 350 grams. And of course, they're 100% dependent on their mom for protection, food, everything. Eurasian lynx offspring won't be weaned until they're about four months old. But even at that time when they're weaned, they're still hanging out with mom anywhere from 10 to 12 months. So for up to a year, hanging out with mom, learning how to hunt, learning how to ambush, how to jump, how to do all the amazing things that Eurasian lynx do, especially when it comes to finding praise and being solitary hunters. So these hunting trips that the female lynx takes her offspring and on are really, really important for their development. And after 10 to 12 months, uh, the, the juveniles will go off on their own um, and become independent. But what's really interesting, Chris, is that how often Eurasian lynx breed depends. So if they did not, if they were not pregnant that season, they'll they'll breed every year. But if they do have kittens, they basically will only breed like every three years because there is so much parenting involvement the yeah. the female invests, right? Yeah, so yeah, when we yeah. talk about generation intervals and having the Eurasian lynx numbers rebound, it can be hard because they're they're not they're a ma a female's not going to have kittens every every um every spring, right? Usually mm-hmm. they're typically born in May. So yeah, it, it's just uh there's just a lot of these hunting carnivores, there's just a lot of investment that yeah. is involved. Yeah.
0: Yep. 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 Well, Angie, there's no, on the Eurasian lynx, there's no population data. You know, the two subspecies, the Turkestan and Caucasian lynx have been pushed to be classified as vulnerable because of the pressure that they're facing. But overall the Eurasian lynx is listed in the CITES Appendix 2. So it's a protected species. And that means it's hunting it is illegal in many countries except in Estonia, Latvia, Russia, Armenia, and Iraq. And I I couldn't find any more information on this, but since 2005, the Norwegian government has set certain population goals. So if they reach a certain level, they may allow hunting. I I couldn't find any info on that. Now, the Iberian links, all the stuff we talked about applies to them. They were on the verge of extinction around 2000, year 2000, where there was only 94 left in Andalusia in 2002. Because of this conservation, by 2012, the population went up to 326 individuals. And then just this year, you know, 1,111 individuals. So that population has rebounded nicely. So it shows, yeah, in 10 years, you can really build a population of these cats even though they tend to have these long generational interview intervals you know with with you know one to three or four cubs or kittens, you know all that all that effort isn't being wasted. so th- they seem to be doing well there, which is great news, great news. now there's got to be an organization out there supporting them, right?
1: Absolutely, Chris. And today I want to highlight one of our favorites, the World Wildlife Fund. They work really hard to raise awareness of the Eurasian lynx in areas where the population has suffered due to hunting and habitat decline. For example, in Switzerland, the Eurasian lynx was driven out uh, by hunting and They have been reintroduced, but the population in Switzerland remains really small. So the World Wildlife Fund works hard to reduce human and wildlife conflict in these areas to hopefully ensure that the population numbers can grow. And then in regards to the Iberian links, uh, the World Wildlife Fund is really involved in uh, trying to get those numbers up, helping the conservation efforts that Chris had mentioned that have helped some of the numbers rebound. They use tactics such as camera traps and then, of course, um, researching and monitoring the population. Uh, They've done some rewilding or reintroducing uh, captive bred Iberian lynx to the area. But then, of course, if you do the rewilding, you you have to really keep your eye on those cats to make sure that their numbers are remaining stable and that those rewilded cats are flourishing. Are flourishing, and so the World Wildlife Fund works with all their partners to uh, to do that, and it's really, really remarkable. And so, this holiday season, if you are interested in helping conservation efforts from uh, from your own home, you can always support the World Wildlife Fund at worldwildlife.org. Uh, follow any of their social media accounts; uh, you will definitely not be disappointed. And you can also adopt links, so that's a fun way to support lynx conservation uh during the holiday season because i'm looking at this stuffy right now yeah,
0: i know it's so cute with, with the with the black ear tufts i know it's darling they're amazing creatures and just conservation tip of the week just go back to the when i talked about fur how you can identify faux fur versus real fur you know, overall, I think we just we just need to eliminate fur being worn, and even wearing fake fur somewhat promotes the industry. So you can think about that. But overall, Angie, amazing cat. I know we've got so many more to do. They're so awesome. But great job on talking about the rewilding. That is a huge effort with uh, animals like the lynx. But I can't wait to get to some of the other species we got we got coming this month. But great job.
1: Yes, it should be a fun month. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Uh, For Chris and I, for our holiday gift, you could give us the gift of a five-star review on iTunes or really uh, any social media platform and let everyone know how awesome we are. And uh, thank you for your time.
0: Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.